I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 6 this morning. It's been a number of weeks since I preached, uh, since before I went to India and Turkey. You may recall that we began a series of sermons walking through 1 Samuel, and that's where we will be returning in a number of weeks. But the elder team has asked that I would take a few weeks to speak on, the, on what the Bible says about money and about giving, and to share a bit of Chris Lean and my own experience and our own practice of giving. Uh, and so it's not without a, a measure of sobriety that I step into this uh, three-week mini-series. Uh, for one, there is the risk of confirming what many outside of the church already believe, that is that the church just wants your money. Uh, we have tried to uh, not communicate that. We don't pass an offering plate. We have an offering box at the back. And, uh, but there is that risk. And so if you're new here, if you're a visitor with us, this is not something we do regularly. We try to speak as little as possible about this topic. And quite honestly, as I say that, I, I am a bit convicted. Uh, I want to be faithful to preach the whole Word of God. Uh, and I looked back in my almost 19 years at Sunrise, only once have I explicitly taken on this topic to preach. Uh, it's, it's come up in texts as I preach through different biblical books. You know, if you've been here for any length of time, that that's been my pattern. And so certainly uh, I've talked about it, but not, uh, not beyond that. And in light of how much the Bible says about money and giving, um, that, that quite likely is, is, uh, is wrong, is a, that I have failed in that. And so to, to whatever degree that is the case, I would ask for your forgiveness. I want to be faithful and preach the whole counsel of God. Uh, secondly, this is a sobering thing to step into because uh, as Christians, quite honestly, uh, everyone today in our culture, we don't like talking about money. We're incredibly private about money. One of my profs in graduate school said that the fig leaf has slipped from the genitals to the wallet, that we, in our culture, will talk about anything except for money. We treat it with incredible privacy. And so there is the risk as we embark on this short series of messages of causing offense to you. That's not my goal. I want to be faithful and proclaim what Jesus says. Uh, but there is certainly some trepidation that I feel as we do this. And third... Talking on this uh, risks coming across as self-serving because uh, our collective giving is how I earn a wage to support myself and my family. Now, Scripture is clear that those who proclaim the gospel should make a living from the gospel, but nonetheless, it's a little daunting for me to stand here and say, here's what Jesus calls us to do in this area. Uh, nonetheless, the elders have asked that I would do this, and so despite the risks and the potentially awkward and uncomfortable moments, I want to do this. Uh, let, let me back up for a moment. The reason why the elders have asked me to do this is, is partly our financial reality. Let me just explain a little bit. Our AGM is coming up. Our year end is coming up in less than two months. Our fiscal year ends at the end of April. Uh, we try and provide updates, or we do provide updates uh, every week in the bulletin, and if you look... We are behind by about $5,000 in our budget. And if you were around last year, you may recall but that last year we ended below budget. 
we actually cut our budget by $11,000 as a church. We made some difficult cuts. And right now, uh, we are behind and we have two months to go. And uh, we have not regularly been, uh, on a monthly basis, reaching our budget. And one other thing that, just by way of information that factors into this, is that uh, over the course of this year, uh, we received two anonymous envelopes full of money, which uh, added up to $10,000. So, so as we think, now that God provided that for us, and we want to celebrate that and be grateful, but had those gifts not come in, we would be $15,000 behind, having already cut our budget $11,000 from last year. And so one of the hard realities that we have as an elder team, as we look ahead to the year ahead and, and a budget, we go, how do we do this? Because there will come a point where there's really not anything left to cut without making major changes. And so uh, the reality is that over the course of this last year, our numbers have continued to go up as far as those who join us to worship, who are participating in our life, and yet our giving has gone down. And so we, we recognize this reality and we just want to talk about it as a church family. And so uh, that's what's prompted the elders to ask me to do this. And so we will embark on this today and over the next couple Sundays, focusing on what Scripture teaches us, uh, because the Bible says quite a lot about money generally and giving and the, the, the place of giving in the life of discipleship of following Jesus. So to that end, that's a little bit of a preamble. We're going to be looking at Matthew 6 this morning, verses 19 to 24, uh, about what we treasure I want to begin with a, a short clip from a, a YouTube video. Uh, one of my favorite comedians, Fred Klett. So direct your attention to the screen for the next couple moments. Gravity. Gravity is a natural phenomena, a law of nature by which physical bodies are attracted to one another with a force proportional to their mass. The Klett boys experienced gravity. All of us actually experience gravity, whether we recognize it or not. Perhaps some of us even share some negative experiences of gravity, like the Klett boys. We all experience gravity always, and yet we probably rarely, if ever, think about it. Yet, think about it or not, gravity is a real force that is exerting itself, operating on us, all around us, all the time. Gravity is true. It is the reality in which we, we, we live. It is imposing itself on us, imposing itself on everything in the created world. This morning, as we look at a portion of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will be explaining, expounding several laws. Not laws as in rules or commands, but laws as in uh, natural phenomena, realities, truths that exercise themselves in our lives. Things that are true, things that are real, whether we recognize them or not, whether we are attentive to them, thinking about them or not, these laws, these truths, these realities are imposing themselves in our lives all the time. They are manifested in our life as we live each day. Now before we turn to the specific verses that we're going to look at in Matthew 6, I want to share a few things with you about the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. Now our passage is found in, 
in a larger section of Scripture called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Uh, a lot could be said. I can't say everything I'd like to say because of time, but I do want to highlight a few things. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is the single largest block of Jesus' teaching that we find in the Bible. Uh, in this teaching that we encounter in the Sermon on the Mount, I want to start with this. Uh, as we read it, we need to understand that these words are for us if we are following Jesus. These words are for all who are disciples of Jesus. And now I say that, and some of you might go like, duh, of course, but uh, it's not so obvious necessarily. If we look back historically, if we read the Sermon on the Mount, there's a lot of really difficult, challenging words there. And because of that, throughout the course of uh, the history of interpreting, interpreting Scripture, there have been lots of different approaches in coming to the Sermon on the Mount. Many of those approaches have been explanations that, that explain why this isn't for us. This is for a future day, is one explanation. Or this is for uh, back in the day when Jesus was here and they expected his kingdom to come right away and it didn't. And so now it's different. It doesn't apply to us. Or There's, there's various explanations for, which explain why this isn't for us as disciples of Jesus. And I want to just uh, challenge that and say, no, this is for all who follow Jesus. This is for us. First, hear that. Uh, second, I want to contend that this is not a new law. Uh, this is not the law cranked up on steroids. Uh, as we read the Sermon on the Mount, there are several places where Jesus will say, you have heard it said, fill in the blank, but I tell you. you you've heard it said, do not commit murder, but I say, if you hate your brother or your sister, you've already, uh, you're already guilty of murder. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but if you look on a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery. It seems like Jesus is raising the bar. And I want to contend that what's going on here, if we understand it right, is this is not a new law. This is not the law cranked up. And yet, it, as we read it, it feels impossible. How, how can we do this? Well, let me explain with the third thing I want to highlight about the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is something that we need to recognize in its context. And its context is the proclamation of the good news. Immediately before the Sermon on the Mount, we, before we encounter that in Matthew 5, Jesus, in the end of chapter tw uh, 4 in Matthew, we read this. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. What is the good news? The good news, uh, news is an announcement of a great fact. It is an announcement that in the coming of Jesus, world history has reached a crisis point. That in Him, the long-awaited kingdom of God is breaking in. God's glorious reign of light and justice and healing is breaking in upon humanity. The good news is that through faith in Jesus, we receive forgiveness. We um, are made righteous. We are accepted. We are adopted. We are filled with the Spirit of the living God. We receive His gift of eternal life. The good news is that in Christ, a whole new order of existence is breaking into the world, invading, pervading, transforming. Through the coming of Christ, the announcement of the good news that God is the, the announcement that God is doing something, that a divine revolution is now underway. He is creating a new humanity, his kingdom people. He is setting broken things right, wrong things right. 
Now, the reason we find the Sermon on the Mount so challenging and so foreign is because we are used to living in other ways. Upside down has come to feel right side up, and Jesus is setting all things back right side up. And initially, that's very jarring to us. But as we read the Sermon on the Mount, what we discover is a portrait. It is a portrait of who we were made to be. It is a portrait of how we were meant to live. Not filled with hatred and lust. Men and women who are full of grace, not bitterness and unforgiveness. Uh, People who don't retaliate to violence with violence. Not anxious and worried, but trusting in God. People whose lives bear marvelous fruit as we live in loving relationship, fellowship with God who loves us and who has redeemed us, who has saved us. Jesus isn't legislating anything new, I would contend, in the Sermon on the Mount. He is describing what happens when the gospel becomes a reality in a human life. We become gospelized. We we begin to develop new character traits. We begin to develop new behaviors. Our our motivations change. We we live with a new set of ambitions. Our lives are gospelized. The, The good news takes root and it transforms us. Oswald Chambers writes this, The Sermon on the Mount is a statement of the life we will live when the Holy Spirit is having His way in us. And so we must not lose sight of the gospel, the good news that in Christ we are redeemed, in Christ we are forgiven, in Christ we are made righteous and made alive. Because if we lose the gospel, if we forget that all of this teaching is anchored to the good news, then when we read the Sermon on the Mount, this will be either frustrating idealism or oppressive legalism. But when we recognize that all that Jesus says here is grounded in, anchored to the good news that he proclaimed, the good news that he brought, the good news that he enacted, then we realize that this is about the ethics of the inbreaking kingdom. This describes what life looks like in a broken world when his kingdom of wholeness breaks in and takes hold of our lives. No, that's a little bit of a long introduction, but I think important for us to grasp as we turn to our text. If you have your Bibles, I want to read now Matthew 6, verses 19 to 24. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So as we turn to these verses and begin to unpack them, let me remind you that Christianity, discipleship, following Jesus, is not a matter of compliance with a list of do's and don'ts. 
It is not a self-improvement project. It is not about trying real hard to get our act together. Christianity, discipleship following Jesus, is about being gospelized. It is about the good news taking root in our hearts and transforming our lives. We are loved. We are accepted. We are forgiven. We are declared righteous. And out of that good news, our lives are radically transformed and reoriented. Every part of our life. There is simply no such thing as inviting Jesus to be part of your life. Jesus isn't interested in being part of your life. Jesus becomes the center of your entire life. And Jesus, and following Jesus, impacts every aspect of your life. The gospel takes root in our hearts and grows, transforming everything. And our entire life is reoriented in light of our relationship with Jesus. There is no compartmentalization. There is no, this is my school life. This is my church life on Sunday and Friday nights. There's no, this is my work life. And here's my spiritual devotional life when I'm at home in the evening or in the morning. All of life is life lived in light of the gospel, lived in relationship with Jesus. Our whole life is transformed and reoriented because of the gospel. And here, the gospel, the gospel touches everything. The Sermon on the Mount walks us through much of life. And here in this text that we're looking at today, Jesus speaks about treasure. What we live for. In this text, there's three sections. We want to walk through each one. Uh, three laws. I talked about laws, the law of gravity. Jesus uh, teaches us about three laws, if you will, three truths that bear on our lives, whether we see them or not. These are the way it is, Jesus says. The first Jesus teaches us about, he's, he speaks of two treasures. There are treasures on earth, and there are treasures in heaven. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice, Jesus does not tell us, he does not forbid the storing up of treasures. That's interesting, isn't it? That's not what he says. He doesn't say, do not store up treasures. Rather, Jesus is drawing our attention to the relative durability of different kinds of treasures. There are treasures on earth. He speaks of moths. Think garments. Think clothing. There are rust, rust or vermin in the NIV. Worms, pests, things that destroy. Crops. Think crops. Thieves who can come and take valuables. See, nothing in the ancient world was secure. There were a variety of threats to what you had, what you stored up. Jesus lists several of them here, but your wealth, your possessions, your money was always at risk. The corrosion of nature in moss, the corrosion of time, rust or vermin, the words, uh, worms, the, the corrosion of humans, thieves. Th there is a great insecurity, Jesus says. There is not this uh, durability to earthly treasures. The author of Proverbs says this, Cast but a glance at riches and they are gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. That's quite the image, isn't it? Uh, wealth, riches, will sprout wings and fly away. Jesus is saying that 
earthly treasures are not durable, that they are insecure. Now, two things. First, the, the means of those things perishing, moth, rust, vermin, thieves, is irrelevant. The point is simply that earthly treasures are extremely insecure. Second, earthly treasures in the ancient world and earthly treasures in our modern world are no different. We may live with the illusion that, that our money, it's secure, it's in a bank. I mean, in, in the ancient world, you'd bury it in your house and thieves could tunnel through the clay wall of your house, dig the hole up and, and be gone. And we think, well, our money is in the bank and, and our government insures it, and so we have this, this illusion of security, but you and I don't know what will happen in a year from now. We don't know what will happen in 10 years from now. We don't know what will happen by the time you or I retire. Some of you are retired. I mean, we've witnessed in the last number of years people losing their entire life savings because the stock market crashed. Earthly treasures are insecure, Jesus says, and what he said in his day is true today. Earthly wealth, our possessions are insecure. Randy Alcorn writes this of earthly treasures. Either it leaves us while we live, or it will leave us when we die. No exceptions. We as a church could go on a couple field trips just to see this really clearly before us. We could all uh, walk down the street a block where there's a cemetery. And we could walk among the gravestones and realize that every person who was buried there took nothing with them. It, you, you will never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. When we die, we leave everything. All our earthly treasures. That's one trip we could take. Another would be a little bit further down the road to the city dump. And if we were to walk into the dump and look over the edge where they are currently dumping things, and we were to look at what we see there, what would we see? We would see all kinds of stuff that people have invested in. Things that we have invested in. Everything that we have in this world, everything that we buy, everything that we think, oh, this will, uh, will, will maybe bless me or, or meet a need. Now, some things we have legitimate needs. I'm not suggesting that that's not true. Scripture's clear about that. But the reality is everything will end up there one day. Earthly treasures are insecure. They are not lasting. In contrast to earthly treasures are heavenly treasures. I'm sure most of you, at least, if not all of you, have heard and are familiar with the quote by Jim Elliott. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim lost his life in South America as a missionary, killed by the Aka Indians. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Eliot is saying that there is no earthly sacrifice that is too great if it is made for Jesus, if it is made for the sake of his kingdom purposes. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells a really interesting parable. It's just one verse long. But a man who discovers, as he walks through a field, he discovers a great treasure. And he, he buries it again, and he goes and sells everything that he has, everything, to buy that field. Now, we, we might be tempted to go, wow, like, 
He sold everything? But what's really significant in that is it says, in his joy. He didn't see this as some begrudging thing he had to do. It says, in his joy, he sold everything and bought that field. He discovered a treasure that was abundantly more valuable than anything else he had. He, in joy, gladly sacrificed everything, sold everything in order to buy this field, to receive this great treasure. Jesus is not, in his teaching here, forbidding all material possessions or wealth. Elsewhere in Scripture, we read ants are praised for their diligence in harvesting and in storing for the season ahead. We are commanded to care for the needs of our families. We're even invited to celebrate and enjoy God's blessings. I mean, Jesus was called a drunkard and a glutton. Jesus had some good dinners. This is not anti-material possessions or wealth. Jesus is not saying that. Here's the key point he's making. The law he is pointing us to. We all treasure something. And he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our hearts, your heart and my heart, will inevitably follow, will inevitably drawn, be drawn to what we treasure, like magnetism, like gravity. Our hearts will follow what we treasure. Our hearts will move to what we treasure. There is a force that is pulling your heart and mine. And Jesus says, that's the way it is. Your heart will follow your treasure. Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Jesus carries on, and he speaks of two conditions in the middle part of our text. Now, these are difficult verses for us to understand, certainly on initial reading. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Physically, we can figure this out. Good eyes versus bad eyes. We depend on our vision for so much in life, for almost everything we do. Our vision impacts all of life. D.A. Carson says the eye is the lamp of the body in the sense that it enables the body to find its way. And so there are two options. Physically, you can be blind and not see, or you can have good eyes and you can see, darkness or light. But there's more going on than, than just this physical reality that Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking using these Images of good eyes and bad eyes metaphorically. The word translated healthy carries with it the connotation, as it's used elsewhere, of generosity. And the word translated unhealthy carries the connotation of stingy. Good eyes are generous eyes. Bad eyes, unhealthy eyes, or stingy eyes. But there's more going on here, too. The word translated here is used elsewhere to speak of single-mindedness of undivided loyalty. So what exactly is Jesus saying? He's saying that a good eye is a generous eye, but a good eye is an eye with singleness of purpose that is focused upon Christ, unwavering in its gaze. That life is full of light. A bad eye is focused elsewhere. You need to understand these verses about eyes in the context of this section of 
the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is talking about wealth and money and treasure. And here's the key point. Here's the law that Jesus is highlighting, that He's telling us about. We all focus on something. And where our eyes focus, our focus will inevitably have a profound impact on our lives. Every area of our life. Where is our focus? That will impact your life. Light or darkness. The third part of the text, Jesus speaks about two masters. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus is speaking of slaves and slave masters, not employment. How many of you have ever had two employers at the same time? You can do that. But two masters as a slave? How do you do that? But slavery is about total devotion and service to a master. Uh, we, Jesus says that if you have two masters, you will love one and hate the other. Now we need to understand that. That is a, a Semitic idiom or, or expression, which means, it, it, Carson says this, to hate one of the two alternatives and to love the other simply means the latter is strongly preferred. In, in a moment of crisis, one master will have your loyalty. Right? There will be one master who is preferred. What or whom you want to serve most will be revealed when it comes to crunch time. When I moved to Edmonton almost 19 years ago, as a hockey fan, I began following the Edmonton Oilers. Began cheering for them. I've, I've often cheered for underdogs, and so that was pretty easy with the Oilers in my early years. But as any of you who know me know, I grew up a Toronto Maple Leaf fan. And so you can't have two favorite teams. Not really. Because any time Toronto and, and Edmonton would play each other, you know this about me, there's no contest. I don't want Edmonton to, to you know, get a point in overtime. I want Toronto to win. Right? It's not a, you know, a close game would be good, I don't care. No. I am a Leaf fan. And there is a moment where that loyalty shows itself. Jesus is saying you cannot serve two masters. There will come a point where who you serve or what you serve will be shown. It will be demonstrated. It will be borne out in our life. The key point Jesus is making is we all serve someone. Bob Dylan sings a song. you got to serve somebody. And notice what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say you shouldn't serve two masters. He doesn't say you must not serve two masters. He says you cannot. It is an impossibility. Yes, people may try. They may attempt this compromise. But the reality is you cannot do it. You're going to serve somebody. Everyone treasures something or someone. Everyone is focused on something or someone. Everyone serves something or someone. These laws are not open for, up for debate. Jesus says these are realities. This is the way it is. These are truths. These are like gravity. Whether you are mindful of them or not is beside the point. They are exercising their power in each one of our lives what you treasure, where you're focused, what you serve, shapes 
your life and mine automatically. Whether we think about it or not, it's like a reflex. This is simply true. Remember a story I heard years ago. It's, it's both sad and funny at the same time. I've shared it before. Some of you may recall. A young couple at home. The wife thought it would be funny to hide in the closet and scare her husband. So she did. She hid there, waited for him to come up the stairs. He opened the closet door and she went, ah! Scared him. And he broke her nose. It's just a reflex. I mean, this is not a guy who hit his wife, as a rule. It was simply a reflex. Like, fight or flight, he had fight, boom! Jesus says these forces are at work in us. Everyone treasures something. Everyone is focused on something. Everyone serves something. The Bible as a whole, and Jesus specifically, has a lot to say about money, about wealth, about earthly treasures. Why? Well, Randy Alcorn says this. He answers the questions this way. Because there's a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about and handle money. We may try to divorce our faith and our finances, but God sees them as inseparable. Isn't it interesting back in Luke's Gospel, I think it's chapter 3, where John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus. He goes out in the wilderness and he's preaching a repentance, uh, a baptism of repentance, calling people to believe that God's salvation is dawning. And, and people come to him and the crowds say, what should we do? In light of this call to repentance, in light of this announcement of God's salvation, what do we do? And, and John responds, with this, he says, anyone who has two shirts should share them with one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Tax collectors come to John and say, what about us? And he says, don't collect any more than you are required to. And soldiers come and say, what about us? What do we do? He says, don't extort money and accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Every one of John's answers speaks to material possessions and wealth and money. Because a life of discipleship, a life of following Jesus it necessarily has profound implications for our stuff, for our wealth, for our earthly treasure. Our approach to our use of these things is central to our spiritual lives, to, coming, to the coming of Jesus, to our coming to Jesus. Necessarily, every area of our life is impacted including resources. Alcorn writes this as I come in for a landing. Each day brings us closer to death. It's true for every one of us. Each day brings us closer to death. If your treasures are on earth, that means each day brings you closer to losing your treasures. Think about that. If your treasures are on earth, that means each day brings you closer to losing your treasures. Jesus' words here are tremendously challenging. What do I treasure? On what are my eyes focused? What am I serving? 
And here's the thing I want you to hear, brothers and sisters. God isn't looking for donors. He's not. Bottom line, this is not about donations at sunrise. God is not looking for donors. He wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. He wants you, and He wants me. He wants our hearts to beat for Him. Ultimately, God does not need our money, but but what we need to understand arising from this text is that we need to give. We need to hold our things, our wealth, loosely. We, We need to treasure Jesus above all else. The Jesus who gave Himself for us, who gave up all to redeem us, who who died in our place bearing the punishment for our sins so that through faith in Him we might be made righteous, we might be adopted, we might be daughters and sons of His heavenly Father, that we might have eternal life and enter into His kingdom people, this new revolution that He is bringing about even now in this broken, fallen world. We need to treasure Jesus. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. We need to be devoted fully to Jesus. And if we focus on earthly treasures, our hearts will be led astray. We will find ourselves treasuring something other than Jesus. We will find our eyes focused on something other than Jesus. We will find ourselves serving a master other other than Jesus. And we will find ourselves deprived of the very thing we want most. Joy. Remember the man in the parable of the great treasure, the hidden treasure? In his joy... In his joy, he went and sold everything to buy this field. I could quote many, many, many quotes right now of individuals who have amassed incredible riches in this world, but I'm going to simply quote one. John D. Rockefeller said this, I have made many millions but they have brought me no happiness. See, many of us in our world, we hear that and we go, okay, that was you, I'd like to give it a try. Right? You just did it wrong. Like the Klepp boys. After your brother jumped and the umbrella did not work, why did you jump? Just didn't think you did it right. I have made many millions, but they have not brought me happiness. In his joy, the man went and sold everything. You know what would be really exciting? You know what I have talked about at times, and I dream of the day when we as a church Because God has so worked in our hearts that we are giving generously and sacrificially and regularly that we would come to you, uh, the elders, that at an AGM we would go, okay, we've got like 
$80,000 extra that we don't need. What do we do with it? Let's give to missions in North Africa where, where people are, are reaching out to Muslims who don't know Jesus. Let's, let's, let's build a few more wells in India where Pastor Dennis just was. Let's, let's give to the Pregnancy Care Center. Let's, let's give and bless. Let's, let's send a check to Kate Chegwin, the junior high down the road, and say, what, what do you need? How can we bless you? How can we bless this community? How can we support? Would it not be exciting? If we as God's people had such an abundance of money that we weren't wondering how we're going to pay the bills, but that we were in a place where we are giving to the work of God, we are seeking to bless and build His kingdom and manifest that and experience the joy that comes through that, would that not be exciting? We bring in in rental income. God has blessed us. We have over $80,000 coming in, in rental income. Would it not be amazing if we could give all of that away, if we didn't need that? I dream of that day. See, God, God doesn't need donors. It's going to take another couple weeks to walk through this. We're going to talk about stewardship and generosity. I, I, I'm not here. None of this is about inducing guilt. But I want to faithfully proclaim what Scripture says. What we treasure, there our hearts will be also. Do you want to have a heart that beats passionately for Jesus and the things of Jesus? Then give to the work of Jesus. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount is not a new law. This is not about cranking up the guilt. The Sermon on the Mount is a portrait of life. What life looks like when the good news takes root and begins to transform us. When the Spirit has His way in us. As we come to see more clearly the greatness of God's love for us, His grace for us, all that He has done for us. As we come to see the transience of this earth in our current life. All that He has given us. As we see that, as the Gospel takes root and grows within us, we will come to treasure Jesus above all else. Our hearts and our lives will be transformed. And like the man in Jesus' parable, giving up everything will be to our joy. Do we believe that? See, giving, being generous to Jesus, being generous to the things of Jesus, giving away what He has blessed us with for the sake of His kingdom, it's, it's not this begrudging thing that will make us miserable. It will fill you. It will fill us with joy. And our hearts will treasure Jesus above all else. Amen.